are back for yet another week of Behind the Lens, our 26th, the end of six months. Uh, and once again, my trusty sound engineer, Brian, is in the booth. And our newest team member, Jordan, who has been doing an absolutely phenomenal job shooting Behind the Lens and adding some really innovative and beautiful work into the editing. Um, and it is, I'm so thrilled to have them here and on the team. I'm here by myself today, so you must endure and put up with me. Um, Greg is, uh, you know, we're sending uh, good thoughts and wishes to his dad. His dad has been hospitalized for a few days, and Greg is taking care of him. Uh, Kit wanted to come back and join us today, but she's off actually doing interviews somewhere. And I'm here with all of you, but it's a big, it's a big show today. We've got the iconic Lance Henriksen joining us at around 11, around the 30 minute mark, around 1130. Uh, many of you know him best as Bishop in Aliens. Others may know him as Frank in Millennium. Uh, still others may know you for his many of the small film roles he's had over the years, going all the way back to Hardcastle and McCormick in television, uh, The Quick and the Dead. But he has another new film coming out called Stung, courtesy of German Horror, which is all, always puts a new spin on things. So uh, Lance will be calling us, and we're going to talk about that. But big junket weekend as, as well. Uh, we endured Terminator, Genesis, gleefully. Let me tell you, Arnold is back, and uh, the Terminator is back with a vengeance. And you're going to be hearing shortly a lot of my interview, exclusive interviews with the producers, David Ellison and Dana Goldberg, as well as excerpts from the press conference from Arnold himself. And if we get a chance later in the show, we'll also be uh, hearing about the film Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, which is expanded it's expanded to more theaters over the past several weeks it's growing at a small rate with the audience it is a it's a gem that everybody should see this summer but we got to make room for it because as i was just reminded once again by brian jurassic world he he's he's cheering and squawking in in the booth um here he's going to give you sound effects jurassic world number Woo! one yeah jurassic <laughs> world i'm sorry i don't want to yell as loud as i did through the glass no, that that's okay. That that's quite all right. But it's a it's a hotly contested race between dinosaurs and emotions because once again Pixar's Inside Out pulled in, you know, number 2 at the box office. And for anybody that hasn't seen it, see it, see it, see it, see it, see it. It is the best animated film of the year. Yes, it will be better than Minions. And Brian's giving me, he's giving me faces, faces, because he's very hot for minions. Very hot. They're hilarious. They mm -hmm. incorporate Spanish in their gibberish. It's the funniest thing to me, because that's exactly how bi little Mexican babies talk. They're super, and they say random Spanish words, like the minions. That was probably more than I needed to know, but. <laughs> I'm sorry. I felt like I had an input that But I think that, I think, no, the <laughs> Spanish babies speaking gibberish. Okay. <laughs> Well, our adults too. I live. I live with a bunch of Spanish-speaking people. And we, we all speak gibberish. Okay. Well, what isn't gibberish is going to be what's coming out later this month on July seventeenth, and that is Ant Man. And although reviews are embargoed, uh, our press conference and all interviews were not, 
And I have to say, it is, I've never used this word describing a Marvel film before, but Ant-Man is adorable. And in the coming weeks, you'll hear excerpts uh, from the press conference and from some interviews that I, that I have done uh, with the filmmakers. But trust me, it is adorable. And it is another film you need to stay to the bitter end of the credits because you get two Easter eggs that will be popping up. But before we even get to Ant-Man on July 17th, Opening up on July 1st, we have Terminator Genesis. And I got to tell you, after the last two Terminator movies, I would have declared the franchise dead and buried, never to be resurrected again. What has happened with Skydance, uh, production company Skydance, producers David Ellison and Dana Goldberg, together with director Alan Taylor, uh, Screenwriters Patrick Lussier and Leda Caligridis, they have brought, they have resurrected Terminator Genesis and it is back. It is glorious. And dare I even say that I would probably rank this, if I were ranking all the Terminators, I'd have the original Cameron version of 1984 as number one. I would actually make this number two in quality of the Terminator franchise. Uh, a, a temporal nexus is opened up. It is absolutely fabulous. But let's hear what the Terminator himself had to briefly say about, you know, being the Terminator. Because the Terminator in Terminator Genesis goes through seven different... We have seven different timelines. The temporal nexus is opened wide open with this film. And it allows the screenwriters and the director and the actors to really hit their marks on so many levels and notably with Arnold because of the fact that and we're talking Arnold Schwarzenegger if anybody doesn't realize that uh he ages we've got 1984 Arnold 2017 Arnold 1993 Arnold 2029 Arnold and you've got to bring nuance you have to bring something to the different ages of the character based on their life experiences. And here's briefly what Arnold had to say about that. So there's obviously a major conflict that people go through and they meet. And that's what creates them this huge, epic battle. Uh, and uh, then, of course, the Terminators, depending on how long they've been around, some of them are just straight Terminator, as the one from 1984. But then the one that has been around longer has already adopted certain human behaviors. Um, subtle. And so from an acting point of view, you have to really be in a very wise the way you use that and how you, uh, you know, get that across, that he has certain human behaviors and he does have certain feelings and stuff like that. But also it creates great comic relief when the Terminator tries very hard to be like a human and yes, the Terminator, our, our, our beloved T-800 model, does fail miserably uh, when he tries to be completely human. And it does provide for some wonderful comic relief from beginning to end in the film. And it's quite interesting because we do learn many things while the, the screenwriters stay true to the canons of Terminator and the world that Jim Cameron created. Um, we do learn things about why the T-800 who is now affectionately known as Pops uh, to Sarah Connor, we learn about his skin. And that his, because the T-800 model was built with human skin over 
the metal underpinnings, the skin will age just like with a human, which explains why at this, after all these years, Arnold Schwarzenegger can keep stepping back into the role. But we also get to see Arnold fighting Arnold. This is no spoiler. It's already out there. It's been out there. Uh, everybody knows it since the Berlin premiere. And thanks to the magic of movies uh, and a lot of training by Arnold himself, a bodybuilder that they pitted him against and then through computer generation um, did the 1984 Arnold face and then fine-tuned some of the body. It provides some of the greatest jaw-dropping, eye-popping moments of the film to see Arnold fighting a naked Arnold, um, which in and of itself is a good reason to see the film. But I had a chance uh, during the press conference to specifically ask uh, our screenwriters and uh, director Alan Taylor about the temporal nexus of the film and what that does for them. So here's the, and listen to the exchange that we had with that. Uh, my question goes out to Leda, to Patrick, and to Alan. You really open up the temporal nexus with this film, and you can go anywhere and do anything. What kind of challenges does that, and advantages does that present for you as screenwriters, and for you, Alan, as a director, when you are putting the visual tone to what's on the page? <laughs> uh, well, I, I started with which is that if you are looking at it as a temporal nexus, which is branching out into alternative timelines, um, nothing that's in canon is changed. Those other timelines are preserved and they remain. We're on an alternate universe timeline, so we are not negating anything that came before us. We are hopefully just adding to it and creating a, you know, a or another, another storyline with the same core characters, and probably the biggest single advantage of that is that you're not asking the audience to put aside anything they've seen before you're asking them to incorporate it and imagine, okay, well, here are characters that you know and love. What if you saw them in a different situation? What about them is at their core that wouldn't change? What about them would if their environment was different? If you put a machine, and in some ways we're sort of um, expanding on the idea of the learning chip, which ironically everybody knows about, even though it was the scene itself was cut out of the second movie, but everyone knows about it, even though we didn't talk about it in this film. You take a T-800 model with his learning chip turned on and put in there. And he's in the middle of humans for decades. And he's going to change. And that's very much an exploration of something that we always wanted to see done from the first two movies, because it's very much teased in the second film, and you never got to go there. A lot of this is about that. What do you love about the franchise? What can you take forward and do more with that we just never got a chance to see? Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's, it's a wonderful storytelling device because you can open up any universe in the world. And it's, um, besides offering twists in new territory, it's also thematically grounded. Like you said, the central question of these movies is, you know, what does it mean to be human? Are we the authors of our own fate or is our fate thrust upon us? If you take the same personality, like you said, and change the terms, you see a different parallel life they could have led. It's where you sort of highlighting that they are writing their own favor, literally. Um, it's also really challenging, though, because once you do this, you get tremendous amount of complexity comes roaring in. I think we have seven time frames that we touch upon in this movie, uh, if you count five facts. Um, so getting across to the audience why you're doing it, why you're allowed to do it, and, do it, and what the limitations are, what the rules are, is a, a tricky thing. I'm very glad you used the word nexus so effortlessly. Um, <laughs> it's, not a, it's not an easy word to throw, throw around. Um, 
one of my favorite moments in the movie is when Arnold uses the word and Bowser's uh, reaction to it is about what the audience's reaction to it is. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, okay, so trying to get that across it doesn't bog the story down, but just unleashes the story. And it's more you know, when we started the process, the first scene that we came up with was actually the, the scene where uh, Arnold fights Arnold. Was, and everything sort of branched out from that forward and back. We knew we wanted the, you know, the, these core group of characters, we wanted Sarah Connor, we wanted Kyle Reese, we wanted John Connor, and how they were gonna build. We wanted to, you know, the moment that you've seen in the trailers, the I'll Be Back moment. We knew we wanted that, but we knew we didn't want it early in the film. You know, we knew if we, if we were gonna use it, we had to earn it and make it so that it had a real significance and, and an emotional significance. So everything was, you know, a, a massive love letter to what James Cameron created, and, um, and so out of that, it was just trying to find the balance of where to slide it in. And a lot of it was you felt it, you just felt your way through it. Um, and whenever we sort of fell wrong, the uh, actors and the producers never really would lean up and, you know, we would made a point of not overdoing it. So that was that was Leda Caligridis, Alan Taylor, and Patrick Lucier talking about some of their concerns and how the temporal nexus allowed them to open up and take us into really incredible places with the film. And going hand in hand with jumping, because there are seven time frames, including the flashbacks, uh, as Alan talked about, is the cinematography. And Kramer Morgenthau, who worked with Alan Taylor on Thor The Dark World, as well as Game of Thrones, which also uh, the young Sarah Connor here is played by Amelia Clark, also from the Game of Thrones. The cinematography, so key to executing what's on the page and really bringing to life and making this a standout film. And what Kramer and Alan have done, they've incorporated a lot of uh, VFX, there are touchstones that you may to other films that have occurred that have happened over the years, plus always adhering to that canon of the original Terminator, but expanding the universe, expanding the world, and really taking us into an exploration of our own humanity on occasion. So at the end of the day, I actually had a chance to grab a minute with Alan and talk to him about the cinematography. Uh, that he and Kramer designed. Alan, I just wanted to compliment what you and Kramer did with the visual, the cinematography, jumping amongst the seven. Times. That was one of the things I meant to say in my answer to you was that yeah, sort of trying to delineate the world from each other, so you sort of you know felt like you were in a new time frame was, was a big part of the challenge, especially for him. So thank you for saying that. I will pass it on to him. We'll be at the screening on Sunday, um, so I'll let him know. I mean, he's uh, you know obviously did a lot of work watching and rewatching, but it was a curious transition because um, the translation because the first film that we were quoting so heavily was a really low-budget war movie, so he had to find the version of that that fit into a big-budget contemporary movie. And, you know, a big-budget film, this shows every penny is up on the screen uh, for this film. There is no When Alan talks about it being a big-budget, it definitely is. And when you watch it, you get your money's worth. And right down to the, the intimate little meticulous details of the of the creation of the various worlds you know i have to give a shout out to the prop master diana burton and uh weapons master harry lou who not only incorporated technology but weaponry into all of their work and working with kramer and what would be you know it has to be visually appealing it has to be 
effective. It has to be something that Amelia can lift in many cases because she's a slight, tiny little thing who is larger than life on screen. And what also came into play is because there are three distinct time periods with weaponry uh, and with ammunition and machinery. So everything had to be time-specific, which involved a lot of research, a lot of timing. Um, you know, many of the sequences, it took up to a year to execute. One of the, of the time sequences in particular that was very lengthy to do was the Arnold battling Arnold in 1984, um, and that did take up to a year. And according to uh, the producers, the final color correction of this film was not done. It, they had a drop dead time of midnight, and it was finished. The film was ultimately finished at 12:03 before it had to be ready for the premiere in Berlin. So that's cutting it close. The other thing that, that the film really capitalizes on and really looks spectacular: huge set pieces. None more glorious than a, a very a detailed uh, stunt sequence on the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, as we've seen with San Andreas, now we've seen with Terminator Genesis. Nobody's blowing up L.A. anymore. We've moved up to San Francisco. I think people are tired of New York getting blown up and destroyed. Tired of L.A. Now they're moving to San Francisco. But there is this breathtaking, death-defying sequence on the Golden Gate Bridge involving a lot of harness work for our actors, uh, for Schwarzenegger, for Amelia Clark, for uh, Jason Clark, for Jai Cart Courtney. And Jai is no stranger to harness work. He has done plenty of it in Insurgent, Divergent, also in Die Hard, uh, The Last Die Hard, A Good Day to Die Hard, which intro really introduced him to action audiences. Uh, but extremely tedious, extremely detailed, and meticulously executed, and you will, it will blow your mind to see that occur. But let, let's move, let's take a short break right now. We need to do a battery change uh, so we don't get interrupted when Lance Henriks, Henriksen calls us, and we'll be right back. Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And we're back and we're talking about Terminator. But before I get back into more Terminator Genesis, I just want to say I love that PSA that we just ran, the Ad Council on Shelter Dogs. Shelter pets, the very best, the only way to go when you're getting a pet. And ironically today, there is a, there's a, there is a lot of turmoil going on in L.A. right now about how some shelter pets are cared for. But uh, going visiting all the time just because it's fun to do, I can say that for the most part, they are well cared for, but they would be cared for better in a home. So I'm very happy that I got to have a shelter dog PSA. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> but getting back to Terminator uh, Genesis, talking about the weaponry, Arnold had a lot of say into the weapons uh, that are in the used in the film and that are created, uh, starting with, you know, the Remington 1100, which is 
used in the 1984 sequences. And then in the 2017 sequences, much more stylized with the M3 and M4 Benelli shotguns, which, when you see them, are absolute stunners. Um, similarly, for Amelia Clark, because of her petite size, they had to find things that she could, you know, handle. One of which, because she's also time traveling, uh, is 1984. She's doing a 50 caliber Beretta. Um, all told, by the end of this production, they're guessing that there were over 500 weapons, different weapons on set, uh, including the specialty ones, uh, rubbers, replicas, and actual collectible pieces. Uh, they actually have some real armory included within the film uh, as, as set pieces. So a lot of work, a lot of the detail, and you do see it, and you see it even better in the IMAX 3D. I am not a huge fan of IMAX as a rule, but Terminator Genesis is one film that you really do want to see it in the IMAX. You want that experience, and we're going to get into that in a little bit uh, with what our producers had to say about that. But first, I want you to hear what they had to say to me in our exclusive interview about resurrecting the franchise. Um, they, it, with the temporal nexus, there are so many possibilities. Obviously, sequels are anticipated by those of us that have already seen the film, by men, many of you out in the public that are going to see the film when it opens on July 1st, but also for the producers, for Skydance, for Dave Ellison and Dana Goldberg. They're hoping for sequels because of what they have now brought back to life. And here's what they had to say. Uh, that is completely up to the audience. That's we up really, to you. really hope so. Um, but yeah, when we, when we first set out to make this movie, we knew very early on that we wanted to, do some, we wanted to be wildly respectful to the, the canon in the first two original Terminator movies. But we also wanted to be able to stand on our own two feet and take the audience to where they had never been before in a Terminator film because... Terminator 1 and 2, they exist. They're perfect movies and you can see them. There's no need to remake them because they are perfect movies in their current incarnation. So for us, we wanted to create something that if you were a fan of the original, there'd be wonderful Easter eggs in that for you. Mm -hmm. But if you were a new audience member coming to see this movie, there was absolutely no homework required. This was the, right. the first of, you know, if the audience so chooses, hopefully more movies. And uh, that was incredibly exciting. And the other thing that's really phenomenal about the universe that James Cameron created is it's maybe more relevant today than it ever has been. Uh, mankind's relationship with technology has changed so radically from when the original films were made. And uh, Cameron's spoken very publicly about how those movies were very much Cold War era movies and he was a product of that time period. And the threat of nuclear apocalypse will always be a part of the DNA of a Terminator movie. But... When you think to 1991, which is the last time I made the movie, the IBM's just come into the household. Mm -hmm. The internet is this idea that we're paranoid about. And we're repelling this technology from being a part of our daily lives. Yet now, we can't exist without our iPhone. We can't exist without our iWatch. We line up in front of stores to invite this technology into our lives, which allowed us to posit a world where Skynet no longer needed to bang down the front door because we were handing the keys over to them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's a moment in the movie where Sarah Connor is listening to somebody talk about Genesis, and he says, you know, I'll be connected 24-7. My car will be connected to my phone. will be connected to my coffee pot. And, and she looks at him and says, you know, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm connected to everything. And she's but connected to what? 
and that's a question we love for people to walk mm -hmm. away as they're you know had a good have a good time at the movie no question but then as soon as you step out and you turn your phone back on just for one second we know you're not going to stop using your phone and nor should you but for one second think about it and the film definitely does make you think about it. There's so many things that we see now. You think back to the very first Terminator. For those of you that have cable, I know Time Warner this week is showing all the different, the different Terminator films. You can catch it on some of the Encore channels. Um, and you do see very prescient uh, back in Terminator 1, of things that have come to fruition, uh, technologically speaking, and the way we are, humanity is tied to technology now. Um, there are some laugh-out-loud scenes that, you know, we hear in the news every day about for the iWatch, for new Apple products, people are lined up, they're camped out outside the stores. And you actually see that in the film, and you see it transpire. Um, so we definitely have art imitating life, and on the one hand and on the other we've got life uh we've got life imitating art uh the art of the past but there's also a great emotional shift uh that that takes place in the film and a lot of it is captured through Jai Courtney and Jason Clark um Jason steps in as John Connor Jai Courtney is the wonderful Kyle Reese and i have to say that Jai uh as Kyle Reese he puts Michael Bean's Kyle to shame uh, in the original. So, you know, it's definitely something, something to see here. Uh, but in terms of the emotional shift, he, casting became a very difficult problem for uh, the producers, for Alan, and especially with the, with the men. Um, Amelia was also tricky. But here's what they had to say about casting. We had, we were very fortunate that we had previous relationships with both of them. Um, we were fortunate enough at Skydance to make a movie uh, a couple of years ago called Jack Reacher. Mm -hmm. And Jai Courtney was the lead villain in that movie. And he was 56 on the call sheet, but we could not take our eyes off of him. He was incredibly talented. And, uh, but we ran a really lengthy cast casting process. And um, to give you an idea how dedicated Jai was to getting this, he was shooting Unbroken at the time flew back to the States for less than 24 hours to test with Amelia on his only day off and then flew right back to continuing shooting. And when he did, you literally read his first take, we looked at each other and said, we, he's Kyle Reese. <laughs> and, um, and then with Jason Clark, uh, I got to know Jason uh, through my sister. My sister made a movie called Zero Dark Thirty with Jason. And that was the first time I saw him. And I was wildly, wildly impressed by just how phenomenal of an actor Jason Clark is he's as you said he's so layered he has so much depth and uh, we got lunch uh, the week afterwards and said we have to find something to work on together and so when we were developing John Connor we were always hoping that it would be Jason Clark and the challenge that Jason has in this movie as an actor is you only get to see John Connor the hero for 20 minutes and so you have to completely fall in love with him as an audience member because if you don't the turn will not be tragic and mm -hmm. Jason brought all of this tremendous amount of depth and nuance to his performance that makes him a tremendously phenomenal John Connor. And then there's Amelia. You yeah. Know, uh, credit to Amelia Clark because it's a daunting thing to step into the role of Sarah Connor. Yeah. You know, you're playing you're playing a feminist, iconic action yep. heroine, and you know she'll say that she watched T1 and T2 quite a bit while she was auditioning, and then mm -hmm. once she got the role, she stopped watching them. 
and read our script and, and realized that we were looking for a different Sarah Connor. And it's a mm-hmm. Sarah Connor that she had to make her own. You know, we didn't want her to mimic mm-hmm. Linda Hamilton because our Sarah is a very different person. You know, yeah. Linda Hamilton, while, while both T1 and T2 are Sarah Connor, they're very different characters. You mm-hmm. know, the Sarah in T1 is an innocent, and, and this thing comes crashing into her life. And in T2, she's damn near on the brink of insanity, and she's a warrior who's a mother protecting her child. Mm-hmm. And then there's our Sarah Connor, who lives a completely idyllic, normal life until she's yeah. nine years old and her parents are murdered in front of her. And this machine shows up and says, I'm going to protect you forever. No one's mm-hmm. going to hurt you. But by the way, here's what the rest of your life looks like. Here's your fate. And she has to live and be trained knowing that. Mm-hmm. And in the way that most young girls respond when their father figure says here's what here's what life has planned for you yeah. you go yeah I don't, I don't I don't really know if I'm gonna do that and Amelia you know we were huge fans of Amelia's from Game of Thrones yeah um and but you know we 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 had a lengthy audition process for this role as well and we looked at her reads and said that that's her she just has this perfect blend of strength and vulnerability mm-hmm. um and because our Sarah is a more youthful Sarah it was it was perfect for us. Well, and and I have to say, you know, following up on what David was saying about Jason Clark and those emotional layers, if you really want to see a standout performance from Jason that's very quiet, very tacit, but very strong, see uh, A.J. Edwards' The Better Angels, where Jason plays a young Tom Lincoln. The movie is about Abe Lincoln's youth, uh, shot in black and white. It's a beautiful, beautiful film. And... Uh, Jason Clark really, it's a, it's quiet strength that he brings to his performance. Uh, it's a beautiful balance to what we see him bring forth here in Terminator Genesis. Another outstanding casting coup here, which is one of the highlights of the film, is J.K. Simmons. Everybody knows J.K. Simmons now, you know, Oscar winner. I don't think he ever thought that he could call himself that, um, but... He play. He has. He's in two. His character is in two timelines. Uh, he is a sergeant, uh, Sergeant O'Brien, back in 1984, and now in 2017, he is a, a police detective, and he is sure that people have time traveled. That something is going on. That something from 1984 has happened in 2017. Um, he is a pure delight. He is funny. His screen time is brief. Uh, it, it essentially sets off the third act of the film. But as uh, O'Brien, you just, you absolutely love him. And the connection that he has with Amelia Clark and with Schwarzenegger is, it's magical when you watch them. And you get Simmons and Courtney together in a couple, you know, dialogue exchanges. And it is really, it's just, you, it's laugh out loud funny, which you don't expect in a Terminator film, let alone Terminator Genesis. And I have just gotten multiple emails here that we are just waiting now uh, for Lance Henriksen to call in. It should be momentarily now. So I'm just stalling for time at this moment. I admit it um, while we wait for him to call. But uh, you'll be hearing more on uh, Terminator uh, after our interview with Lance when the call comes through and 
there's a lot there's a lot uh, that the producers have to say about the emotion the emotion of the film and there's a lot going on about parenting um which you wouldn't normally expect in a film like Terminator but what's also interesting is that we see that same parenting kind of thread and parental child relationship when you see Ant-Man come July 17th and that's something we'll be talking about uh next week or the week after with Ant-Man is the parent-child dynamic. Uh, it is absolutely incredible, and it is the basis. It's the heart of the film. And it's nice to see these films that are taking the a step back, and they are focusing, these tent poles, they are focusing on story. They are focusing on heart. They are focusing on emotion. And the performances, the casting, a lot of thought is going into them to achieve those right layers and those right emotions and the all-important chemistry to establish them. In Terminator, you'll see there are some beautiful sequences, and you'll hear Dana uh, Goldberg talk about them, where very quick cuts to just seeing crayon drawings that Sarah Connor did as a young girl of her and the man she calls Pops, our T-800 Terminator. And every father and mother in the world have these same drawings hanging on their refrigerators. And you see moments like that from a T-800 Terminator and your heart just stops. And it just, it gives an entirely new, it takes Terminator Genesis truly to Genesis and a new beginning. So... It's it's something that is so wonderful to see, so impressive. And I guess we'll start... Oh, our phone is ringing. Hello, Lance. This is Debbie. Welcome to Behind the Lens. Hiya, Debbie. How are you? I am fine. Thank you so much for... for... You bet. Did you see the movie? Oh, you bet I did. Oh, <laughs> I, I'm telling you, I was so surprised and happily surprised when I saw what he did, the director, Benny. Oh, Benny did. You know, there's something about, the, and I think it's the roots of the German horror, horror film. And anytime you get Germany involved in a horror film, you always get something that's really cool and different. Well, not only Germany, but the youth of America. You know? oh. I mean, the youth of the world. They're starting to speak to tell their story, you know, through all of this stuff. You know what I mean? Oh, my, absolutely. I mean, and this film, it's like there are nods to, of course, to Aliens, to Men in Black, to Texas Chainsaw. There are iconic little visual touchstones throughout the film while it still opens up this whole new world. And I got to say, there is no better, better way to get stung than to watch Stung. <laughs> My biggest fear is that there's going to be a rush on people starting up uh, catering businesses after this. <laughs> That's very po- well. You know, now the secret there is get yourself as the spokesperson for them and get get a percentage. Oh boy, I tell you, I I when I saw it, I was so entertained. It was relentless. Kids are going to love it. You know what I mean? There's oh. a lot of good humor in this, and and his. You know, there was, there's a sensitivity to what he chose. You know, the level of humor is really quite good. It really is. And Very there, sophisticated. It is, and there is something for everyone. There's some laugh-out-loud funny humor that you get it right away. And a lot of that is your visual humor. But then 
there's there's intelligent, smart humor built within the dialogue, within yeah. within the character dynamics. I mean, the, your character of Carruthers, this lovely politician. <laughs> <laughs> it was my favorite thing to get back at what I, you know, the only way to get back at injustice is to through your art, really, mm -hmm. you know, and and a lot of politicians really bug me, and so I thought. <laughs> I want to play him as a total alcoholic, a guy who's not going to get reelected, doesn't know what to do, and he's not ashamed. He's just he if he got reelected, he would drudge on through another term, right? Mm -hmm. And so here he is. He's like caught up in this thing and, and all he's thinking about was, "Wow, that looks like a good Malbec. I know, you know, he would have a good glass of wine. That'll take care of everything. That was, um, for those that have, will be seeing the movie, there's a great sequence after these, these uh, mutated wasps attack, and the survivors are down in the basement. It's a wine cellar, and Lance's character, uh, Mr. Carruthers, Forget about the wasps. Forget about being in a basement. There is some really cool wine down there, and the matter yeah. the matter of fact way that you just approach it, Lance, was just so delicious. And I did laugh out loud in the theater when I saw it. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah. Oh my! Look at that wine. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, I kept thinking, "Ooh, wish I were there to have it too." Yeah. I know. I know. But you know, you. It's just it, the movie. I think is really going to do well. I mean, it's one of these are one of the happy moments when when you have a a group of young guys that came out of film school together to decide we're going to risk everything and make a movie, and here here it is. I mean, I'm really happy for them. I mean, it just you know it it belies a first time effort. Right, From, right down to the poster. I yeah. love that. Poster. Oh, the poster is just incredible, isn't it? You, oh, yeah. it harkens back to something you would expect to see. It, from Universal's glory days. I know. As, yes. Just beautiful. <laughs> but, you know, Lance, I, I want to ask you, because I saw you last year in the lovely little gem, Road to Paloma, Jason Momoa's directorial debut as Agent Kelly. You know, you do voicing. You voice Transformers animated cartoons. You do the, you did a, an adorable, adorable uh animated thing the dog who saved halloween some time ago what <laughs> what do you look for because i know you go all the way back to the early days you started out in ryan's hope in soap operas you oh that was did you see that acting that was over the moon that oh. broke the acting meter i was it was the hammiest character you could possibly be offered and you were on for a while uh four shows Damn. and then i said no they offered <laughs> me a contract and i said you know, if I'm a very young actor, and if I get on Ryan's Hope, I'll learn every bad, bad, you know, bad <laughs> behavior in the world. I didn't want to do it, but you know, just because it's so quick and so I wasn't ready for it. Well, and you moved into, and I think you did it very smartly. You moved into a lot of episodic television. You were doing Cagney and Lacey. You did Hardcastle and McCormick. You know, things along that. While you picked up more film experience. Notably, when you went into the right stuff as Wally Shira, which you know, Cagley and Lacey was a good show. In fact, the uh, the CIA used it as a training thing for hostage negotiation. I did, and I was a hostage negotiator, so I felt really proud of that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But you know what? It's all a great deal of luck and timing. Mm -hmm. 
things are going to happen. We're we're all lucky, and we're all hopefully in the right place at the right time. You know. Well, you know, speaking of luck and timing, how fortuitous is it that right now we have not only are you in another film coming out, um, Stung, but you know a franchise that you were a, a, a part of at the beginning is now been is being resurrected on Wednesday, Terminator. Wow, yeah, I know. There's a few of those. There's going to be an Aliens again, too. But, but, but there's another thing. I have four movies coming out within the next couple of months. You work harder than anybody I know, and you pick these little... <laughs> tell me all four that are coming out. You know, you know what? There's one called uh, Monday 1101, which I think is going to be a really knockout film. And then I've got uh, Harbinger Down is coming out. And then uh, what else have I got? Oh, oh, I know. You, and then you have many more that are still coming up in production. Yeah, they are. Yeah, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm leaving uh, to go to New Orleans next week to go do Badlands. Ooh. And I have a movie right after that. So I'm, I'm, really, I'm really very busy. But look, if I could play a guitar really well, I would spend the rest of my life on a street corner playing music. I really would. I can't play a note, but I would. And likewise, it, I, I, I really love acting in the sense that it's like music. I really love getting on a set and meeting, working with all new people and, and having that chemistry going. And it, it's good. It's a good thing. Is there anything in particular that you look for, as busy as you are, when a script comes across your desk? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, really what's important is, does it resonate with me? Is there a way into that story? Or am I just going to be a kind of cliche, you know, a cliche uh, serving the film and then then leave, mm -hmm. you know? So I'm looking for ways into the story so I, I, it resonates and I can I can bring something to the table. Otherwise, why do it? I mean, I'm not starving. <laughs> <laughs> do you, out of all the characters you've played at this point in your career, with many uh -oh, more, oh here it comes, with many, What's my favorite. I was, it's the I last was, one. It's always the last no. movie I did. That's my favorite. I was going to ask you what was your least favorite. Oh no! <laughs> oh really? Oh, you want to dig in the you want to dig in the in the dumpster? Okay. Well, let's see. Uh, oh, I can't. I can't go there. It's really, you know, it would be uh, cutting somebody, and I don't want to do that. But yeah, you know, some maybe even a group of people. No. <laughs> but. Uh, well, but, you know, you've been alone. So I have a phrase that that's really true. If I've done so many films that if if I carried a piece of every one of them with me, I would end up like uh, psychotic. <laughs> so I, I really approach it like a, a cat leaving a cat box. It doesn't look back. You know, it just does it and goes, and and then hope for the best because once I'm done and they say, and that's a wrap for Lance. I have no control over anything, mm -hmm. so I have to stay healthy mentally. So I can't wait, sit around waiting for that movie to come out. There's no way. Well, and given that you don't have control, once they say it's a cut, it's a wrap for Lance. Does it make you even happier when you see a film like Stung, and you and the outcome is just so much fun and so well done? Oh yeah, I, I was very happy at the screening. I really was. I might not watch it again because I only watch my films once. Mm -hmm. Because you know you really have to you have to let go. 
but but it was a thrill, man, to see it because I was blown away by by the choices that he had made. It's yeah. a good movie. It really it's is. It's a very entertaining movie. It's relentless to the point of <laughs> you almost can't forgive yourself for for going to the to the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know I've already seen it once at a press screening. I'm going to pay money to see it again. I know. It's cool, man. It really is. It is. Lance, I promised Karina I would keep you to 10 minutes because you're so jammed today. Thank you so, so much for calling in. I really you're appreciate welcome. it. Thank you for your support. And thanks. You know, I'll be around. You're going to, we'll talk again maybe down the road. We certainly will. We've both been around so many years now that, yeah. <laughs> cool. very, thanks very a lot, cool. Lance. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And that was Lance Henriksen talking about his new film, Stung. Um, it is truly, it, it is a new entry into the horror genre uh, by a wonderful new director, Benny Diaz, D-I-E-Z, uh, and written by Adam Aristi. And we had Clifton Collins Jr. And then some newcomers, Jessica Cook and Matt O'Leary. Jessica Cook is a young catering girl. She's inherited a business from her father, Matt O'Leary plays character of Paul. He works for her. They go to cater this exclusive party, and wasps start appearing. But they're not just not just any kind of wasps. They mutate and transform once they sting you. So there's some great visual comedy. There's some great visual effects. A lot of it is practical effects. And anybody that as that reads my work or, or listens to Behind the Lens, you know how big I am on practical effects, practical stunts. And Stung really makes the most of all of that. It is just, as I said to Lance, the best way to get Stung is by seeing Stung because it is a lot of fun. And that will be out. I think it's also going to hit VOD. Uh, there will be a full review and an interview up on... It'll be on my website and at various outlets that I write for around the world uh, over the coming week. But, so, let us get back to Terminator. And, of course, our lovely segue since Lance was, he did play the original detective Hal Vukovich in the 1984 Terminator. So, seems appropriate. We're talking about Terminator t Genesis today, uh, and it, we got to have a few minutes with Lance Henriksen. So... Moving onward, and we're talking about the emotion and the parental development uh, and the humanity that comes out in Terminator Genesis. Uh, it, it was something that's very, that was very important to David Ellison and to Dana Goldberg. And here's what they had to say about the issue of Terminators and humanity. Yeah, there's an incredibly beautiful piece of voiceover in T2 where Sarah Connor's talking about how the Terminator is a better would, would better father than any of the would-be fathers that have come in and out of John Connor's life. And the idea of the learning processor was something that Lita and Patrick gravitated to immediately. And the notion that Arnold's character has been living amongst humanity since the 1970s, um, it really allows you to beg the very fundamental question of what does it really mean to be human? And hopefully if you find yourself emotionally engaged in him the same way you would empathize for a human being even though he's a machine, Hopefully that becomes the answer to the question of the movie without wanting to give away how it ends. We've spent many, many a day talking about what that period of time was like when Pops is taking the long way to get to 2017, mm -hmm. 
what his day-to-day life would have been like. And we always loved the idea that this machine felt the need to hold on to these souvenirs, to hold yeah. on to these memories, these you know tangible things yeah. to remind him of Sarah. We always just thought it was a beautiful idea. And those tangible things are the crayon drawings and the Polaroid Instamatic pictures uh, that I mentioned uh, before our interview with Lance Hendrickson. And they are so charming. They are so heartwarming. And it really does bring a new level of humanity to the Terminator as an individual. Uh, And it's very interesting to see the new upgraded models, the T-1000s, which are slick and super cool and high-tech and look like molten silver as they transform. But uh, your heart always goes back to the original, let me tell you. But... Now, here we've got, you know, we've got a film. uh, We have producers that are so well-versed in sci-fi action fantasy. You know, they've tapped into the zeitgeist. They've tapped into all of our heads, all of our hearts. So I asked Dana and David, what is it that you think drives the public to keep them wanting more of franchises like The Terminator, like Star Trek, uh, you know, these big tentpole films that take you to places to boldly go where you haven't gone before i mean i think it always comes back to story and character you know to sometimes people will comment and just say something's an action film in in a very sort of pejorative sense just because it has things that explode or has great visual effects doesn't mean that it needs to be devoid of a story Mm -hmm. and nobody did that better than james cameron in both t1 and t2 because they're these incredibly masculine films Mm -hmm. big action big, big visual effects big scares and yet at the heart of both of them is the emotional character story you know, T1 is a love story. It simply doesn't function as a movie without the line, I came across time for you, Sarah. And T2, as, as David was saying earlier, is really a love story between a father and a son. Mm-hmm. And so for us, both in this movie, frankly, and all of the action films we work on, you want it to be about story. You want it to have real characters who have real emotions that you can relate to. Just because you're doing a tentpole Yes, we want to take you to another world. That's the fun of the movies. But within that other world, you all always want to find something relatable. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll, I'll just go to, to dovetail into something that Dana said at the end. I mean, at it, it, Skydance, on the film side, we only make action, adventure, science fiction, and right. fantasy movies. Uh, that's what we all love. Um, but one of the things I think is inc- when, you, when you look at how the business is evolving... Those are the movies that when you go on a big screen, they can really transport you to places that you can't go in your daily life. They can take you somewhere that a television screen just can't do the same thing. Mm-hmm. They can really transport you onto worlds. And when you sit in a dark room with a bunch of strangers and watch a movie like you know Star Wars or Star Trek or the first Back to the Future or whatever your favorite film might be, the original Jurassic Park... It is, there is no experience like it and the, the large screen format is made for these types of stories and there's no place else better to get them than that movie theater yeah and I love what David said because years ago back in the golden age of, of Hollywood back in the 30s and 40s and uh, all my TCM uh, party fans and friends out there know this well the reason you go to the movies, movies were created for escape uh, during the, de- the Depression. It took a presidential order uh, 
mandating happy movies be made so people can escape, can escape so they can be transported. That's how Shirley Temple got to be the number one box office star because of singing, dancing, and her mop-top cuteness. And it's still the same today, and I'm glad that David Ellison, who is on the younger end of the filmmaking forefront in terms of producers out there today, um, but he believes in that transportation, transporting yourself, transporting your emotions, and going into other worlds, escaping to somewhere that you haven't experienced before. And hand in hand with this are the big set pieces that we get in films like Genesis, that we get in the Mission Impossible movies, that we get in Star Trek movies. And with those, the decision has to come into play. Do you make this intending it to be an IMAX uh, 3D? Do you make it just intending it to be seen on a 2D standard screen? Because there's time, there's money, all of that comes into play. So when they have to make a decision... What do they do? Do they look at the big picture or settle for the smaller picture? Uh, IMAX 3D is my favorite format. <laughs> it is the number one reason to go to a movie theater. It's, um, you know, we've been fortunate enough to be able to do a lot of movies in IMAX, whether it be Mission Impossible Grips Pro Protocol, uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, uh, you know, Terminator, and then, you know, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation next. And there is absolutely no substitute when the top and bottom of the frame opens up and you're looking at the big screen you are transported there in a way that no other format does that for you and as James Cameron created on Avatar that type of 3D which really is an immersive experience where you feel like you can actually touch the world around you um, is makes the experience for the audience member that much better and for us uh, we do everything in IMAX 3D if we could. <laughs> And I know with those words being spoken, there are many of you out there right now going, oh, please say no, say no, say no. Um, no, David is, it's adamant, the right kind of film. For their kind of film, IMAX 3D, is when it's done as well as Alan Taylor and his team have done Terminator Genesis, by all means, I'm all for it. Uh, but not every film needs to be done that way. And that's where you have to be cautious and you have to be judicious in your filmmaking decisions. So, yes, I know, Brian's giving me, he's giving me the wrap. So that is it for today. Next week, Greg hopes to be back with us. Uh, we're going to hear some of my interview with James McTeague about uh, working with Pierce Brosnan again on his new film, Survivor, where Pierce plays a bad guy for a change. Uh, hopefully we'll hear from Sheldon Ledich, uh about his work on the wonderful Matt Heartwarming Max that's out. And, of course... Ant-Man, and uh, The Gallows. So Jason Blum and Blumhouse fans will be really happy to hear about that one. So until next week, this is Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, MovieSharkDeBlore.com. Find me at 150 outlets, print and online around the world, and right here every Monday at 11 o'clock on Adrenaline Radio. Mm -hmm.